Open up to the, the book of Romans. We always say this, guys, if you've been around here and uh, you don't have a Bible, guys, out there on the welcome table, we have it stocked, the Bibles. This is what we do. We gather around the Bible. We seek to hear from God and, and ask him through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to just not only just learn, but then to go and to live out these truths. So we'd love to give you one if you want to stop back there. But last week, we, we wrapped up our uh, long series through Luke's gospel, all right? And, and today we're, we're starting a brand new series that's going to take us through the better part of, of the summer, but for the next 12 weeks, we're going to study through uh, the great gospel-saturated book of, of Romans. And guys, throughout this, this series um, that we've titled Gospel Doctrine, I'll get to that in just a minute, we're going to take a, an in-depth look at, at four key chapters in this book, okay? We're not going to look at the whole thing, um, but we're going to look at chapters four or five through, through eight. And uh, guys, as we get into this, these chapters, they're, they're so crucial for us because really what they are is it's, it's, it's all about the, the heart of the gospel of Jesus, all right? Because Romans, as, as the pastor and theologian Timothy Keller puts it, he's like, it's about many things. But ultimately, this letter is about one specific thing, the gospel. And, and you know, we, we, we use that word a lot around here, right? But, but what does that actually mean, right? How, do, how are we to understand and, and articulate the gospel? What does the, act, the gospel actually mean for humanity? What does it mean for, for me as I stand up here and teach the Bible? What does it mean for, for you as, as you sit here gathered as docs at church? What does the gospel actually entail? Because it can become one of these words that we as Christians, we just kind of get so used to, we just throw it away or throw it out, but we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. What does the gospel actually mean? And guys, these are some of the questions that I really believe that God is going to answer as we go through Romans, because Romans is, is ultimately a letter that teaches gospel doctrine. And, and I want you to know, guys, that, that gospel doctrine impacts all of life. Now, I think it's significant to note that when I say the word doctrine, all right, that can be a word that, that kind of sounds very religious. Maybe you're even hearing the word doctrine. It kind of feels cold and, and maybe even a little bit archaic. But, but here's what I want you to know about doctrine, guys. We all have a doctrine that we live by. Every single one of you, you have a doctrine that you live by, all of, all of humanity. And here's what I mean, okay? The word doctrine simply means just a set of beliefs that a person holds. Okay, this, this is in fact doctrine. And so the issue of doctrine and beliefs, it's something that all of humanity holds because we all have thoughts about things. Right? You, you have thoughts and you have ways about thinking about life and the things that you do. All right? and, and whether you're a, a teacher, a CEO, a construction worker, a, a stay-at-home mom, you're also a full-time thinker. All right? This is part of what it means to, to be human. And you've never had a thoughtless day in your life. Every single one of us. And it begins when we're, when we're really young. Okay? I want to I demonstrate this to you. Okay? My daughter, Lily, was about three years old. All right, when she started looking at all of her stuffed animals and her toys in her room and started asking questions like, hey, daddy, did, did God make my unicorn pillow? Right, and then she'd look at her mom and say, hey, mommy, did, did, did God make my, my Elsa Barbie? And she kept asking these, these endless, seemingly unimportant questions that just drive parents slightly insane. You know what I'm talking about, parents? I'm the only one. Okay, I just need to grow in godliness, okay? But... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, Lisa and I, one of the things that we do is we, we teach our kids the Bible. And, and we were teaching Lily the, the Bible and how God created everything in the world. And he made it good and he created her and, and he actually loves her. And as we did this, like her beautiful little brain, as she heard these truths that God creates, she just started mulling over 
the doctrine of creation. And she began to ask those questions. And now she didn't know anything about the doctrine of creation from an academic standpoint, but, but her questions nonetheless were still very theological. And so we have to ask that question, okay, when you look at these young kids, when you look at Lily as a three-year-old asking these questions about creation, you know, why was she asking about her, her unicorn pillow and her Elsa Barbie? And why was she so fascinated about their origin of creation? And I'll submit to you, it's not because she's like a genius philosopher, okay? I'm her dad, okay? So that waved bye-bye at the moment of conception, okay? Maybe my wife. But, uh, right, she's not a genius. She's a human, right? And she was just doing what God designed her to do, that we all, guys, all of us, we, we think. And thinking about life and, and our desire to, to understand it is a, is a deeply and uniquely human thing to do. And it's ultimately, guys, how, how God has, has wired us to operate as people. But here is the, the issue and the problem, all right? A man by the name of Paul David Tripp, he says it like this, that, that most of the time we don't realize that we're actually thinking and we fail to understand the profound significance that our thinking has on our lives. Because here's what's true, guys, of every single human being that we all have a constructed framework of, of life assumptions that function as really just an instrument in our lives that we use to make sense of the life that we're living. All right, and that framework is a result of things like upbringing and education and life experiences and, and even personality traits, but regardless, we all look through life through an interpretive grid that affects everything about us. And here is why this is so significant, okay? If you're in the book of Romans, at the top of Romans, right next to the big word Romans, I want you to write this down. Thought always precedes and determines activity. Some of you guys are still looking at me. Write that down in the top of Romans. Thought always precedes and determines activity. All right, that you and I, we're, we're different from animals. All right, that, that we don't just act out of instinct like animals, but rather we think, and we speak and we act based on the way that we've thought about and interpreted the situation that we're experiencing right in the moment. And, and even if you get outside the Bible, if you get outside of, of Christianity and the church, when you, when you look at just like social experiments that have been done throughout the years, this is proven time and time again. And that's why you can put three different people in the exact same spot, in the exact same situation, and they will have three different, extremely different at times, reactions to it. Because each individual person has interpreted that situation through their personal thinking grid. And so if I had to put it another way, it would be this, is that the doctrine that an individual holds ultimately drives their thoughts, their emotions, their decisions, and really just their overall life. So let me connect this all to the importance of, of Romans, all right, and this idea of gospel doctrine. And guys, here's what you need to know. God has, has hardwired you. He's hardwired all of us to view life through an interpretive grid. And he gave us his word. He gave us the scriptures. He gave us the Bible to ultimately shape that grid so that we would know the purpose and the meaning of the life that he has given us. This is what he has done. And without the Bible, guys, that, that God gives us, with, without this, the the gospel-saturated doctrine that we have throughout the Bible, we don't know how to think rightly about life, about God, about Jesus, about the world around us. And I'll submit to you, all right, this is my opinion, but I'll submit to you that much of the problem in our world, the problems throughout our world, in your families, in your personal relationships, and everything, the problems, 
guys, are due to the fact that people have replaced God with philosophy and spirituality. All right, and as a result of, of just replacing God with, with spirituality, this vague spirituality and philosophy, they've shaped for themselves a, a very destructive doctrine that they view the world through. And in our world of, of syncretism and, and relativism, God is still speaking because he loves us and he loves you. All right, and he's speaking to help us, to help the people he loves in our human predicament of, of sin and suffering and satisfaction and salvation, he's speaking to us. And this is why we're doing this series, to work with God through his word, to bring about a people that are fluent in the gospel and can work with God in this city and even beyond, all right, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to work for the restoration of all things. This is the mission that God has in our world today and how he has invited us to be part of it. And Romans 5 through 8, guys, is going to help us do just that, okay? So we're going to jump into the book of Romans. We're going to start in actually chapter 1, okay, verse 1. So if you're there, here's what we see. Paul. All right, we got to stop there, okay? You're like, this is going to be a long 12 weeks. It might be, okay? Guys, Paul, very significant that we mentioned him, all right? Paul is, is the man who, who wrote Romans, this letter, and, and it's significant to mention because if I were to ask you, in addition to, to Jesus, who would you say is, is the most prolific person to have ever lived? All right? And if I asked you that question, most of you, many of you maybe, would, who have studied history, then you know your Bible, you'd probably say Paul. And, and to my estimation, as a, as a Bible teacher and a student of history, I would say you're probably right. He's definitely in the top five. All right? You can't deny that from a historical perspective. But Paul, guys, he's just a towering giant. And not just Christianity, but the, the, really the course of, of human history, all right, that, that we're all here today in large part. I want you to think about this. We're here gathered as Doxa Church in Madison, Wisconsin, in large part due to this man's legacy and as a result of his ministry. And so being such a, a prolific man and being the one who wrote this, this letter, I want to briefly introduce Paul to you this morning. I know some of you, you're, you're very familiar with Paul and his story. Some of you, maybe not so much. But we need to get on the same page with, with who he is because we're studying this letter that he wrote over the next several months. But four things I'll tell you, okay? The first is this, is that Paul was just a brilliant man. All right? he, he was, in fact, brilliant. If you, if you read Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he, he talks about how he studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel. All right, and Gamaliel was, was the leading scholar of the Old Testament in this day. And so Paul, he didn't just know the scriptures, but he learned it from the leading scholar of that day. And as a student in this time, he would have committed to memory much, if not all, of the Old Testament. Now you think about that, right? We can just nod our heads and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I mean, come on, we struggle to memorize like a verse, right? Here's a guy who's like, yeah, you're not laughing because some of you are like, I know a verse, Jesus wept, right? You got that one, right? But we, we struggle, but he's, he's brilliant. And as he's writing Romans, he quotes the Old Testament around 100 times. Even more than that, he alludes to it many, many more times. And insofar as we can determine, he does so from memory. Because as he's traveling on his missionary journeys, he's not traveling with a library of scrolls. But he's committed the scripture to memory. He, he knows this. Some of you have heard of Martin Luther, the, the great Protestant reformer. He called him, and I quote, the wisest man after Christ. So Paul is, is a brilliant man, okay? Now, in addition to this, Paul, if you're taking notes, was intensely committed, all right, intensely committed. 
But if you study the, the ministry of Paul, you'll, you'll discover that his ministry lasted around 10 years, and we can actually trace his missionary journeys. And those are those maps in the back of your Bible that you never look at because you're like, what, what do I need a map, right? Those are what they do. They, they show kind of like the missionary journeys that these different people took. They're actually insightful, right? But we, we look at that. We can actually trace that at the minimum, Paul in his missionary journeys walked at least 10,000 miles throughout those 10 years. Think of that, right? I mean, my watch celebrates when I hit like 700 steps. I get like fireworks, it vibrates, it's all that, right? 10,000 10, steps. I don't think I've walked 10,000 steps in my life, right? But Paul, in an effort to introduce people to Jesus, he walked, some scholars say, upwards of, of 15 to 20 miles a day just to introduce people to Jesus, now, on top of that, it's not just he's driving and walking on sidewalks through great neighborhoods and parks, right? But he's traveling, and he's hated. He's despised by people. He's being opposed everywhere he went because of his faith in Jesus and because of the message of Jesus that he preached. He says in Galatians that, that he bore on his body the marks of Jesus, meaning that he was flogged. He was beaten just as Jesus did, or was, when we, when we talked about that on, on the Good Friday account, right? That he was beaten like that. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, which I'd encourage you to do before Connection Group this week, he says that he was beaten with rods. He was whipped. He was stoned. Not high, literally thrown rocks at, right? He was, that's just what he was doing. They would put people that they wanted to kill and put them in a circle, and they would literally just throw rocks at them until they died. He talks about how he was pursued by people, and they were trying to kill him. He was imprisoned and suffered so many different things. But facing all of these terrible oppositions, what does he do? He keeps going. He keeps going. Now, I don't know about you, but you know what I would do? I'd move to Florida, right? I'd find a retirement community by a pond, and I would just, you know, I'd be like, that's enough. I can't do, I can't do this anymore. But Paul, he just keeps going. He was intensely committed. The third thing to know about Paul is this, is that he was a giant. Some of you guys just looked up, really, a giant? No, here's what I mean, Okay. He's probably a short little man, right? But a giant in the sense of there are those people in the course of human history that kind of just rise above humanity. That because of their life and their ministry and their legacy, they change the world. And the world is never the same after they existed. When you consider the, the Bible in the New Testament, there's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of those. And we can trace back, honestly, guys, we can do this. We'll probably do this in the fall as we launch into the Acts series. We can trace back much of the gospel ministry in this city all the way back to Paul. That he's a giant and that he's a huge figure in human history. Now, the last thing I want to mention about Paul before we get into this is that he was not always Paul. Some of you know this, this story, but Paul didn't always follow Jesus Right? In fact, before he met Jesus, he was one of the leading opposers to, to the early church, to, to Jesus' followers. The first time we actually meet Paul, if you want to read this, is in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a young leader in the early church, and Paul was overseeing. We meet Paul in Acts chapter 7. Paul is overseeing the killing and the execution of this innocent Christian leader that they would gather around Stephen and they literally just threw rocks at him until he died. And Paul was there and he was watching this and he was ordering this to happen. 
In addition to this, if you go into Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Paul actually describes himself as what he did. And he says, and I quote, I, was a ra- I ravaged the church. This is what Paul said about himself, that he was destroying the church. So you, you think about this. Paul was all those things I just mentioned, but he's simultaneously this, like, what happened? Well, if you keep going in Acts, in Acts chapter 9, we see that he meets Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up, if you kind of are familiar with Brad Pitt and Fight Club, he has one of those moments with Jesus. Jesus knocks him off his horse, blinds him. He's laying on the ground being like, what the heck is happening? And Jesus speaks to him. And he says a question. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, Saul's eyes are opened. He responds to Jesus and his question as Lord He comes to him as savior. Jesus changes his name to Paul, which was indicative of those times of a total transformation of who you were. He goes from Saul to Paul, and Jesus changes his entire life, his entire mission. And he goes from being a persecutor of the church to now a pastor of the church and a planter of many churches. Now, all that being said, here's what I want you to know about Paul. Gospel doctrine changed everything about Paul. All right, Paul is writing Romans as a radically transformed man. He's changed him. That's what gospel doctrine does. And Romans continues to change people throughout the history of the world. Next week, I'm gonna kind of give you a, a brief overview of how this has been true, even leading up to today. But this is what gospel doctrine does. So with that being said, turn to Romans chapter five. This is where we're going to start our study of these these four chapters, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on on verse one. I'm not going to stop word for word, I promise that, but we are going to do one verse, okay? So one verse, Romans chapter five, verse one. Here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, I want you to circle that word in your Bible. Therefore, since we have been justified, circle justified as well, justified by faith, we have peace with God. Circle peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this one verse that we're going to camp out on, we're given so much to shape our understanding of gospel doctrine that this word justification, guys, it is a massive theological term for for you to grasp and understand so that you can understand what this means, what the gospel means in your life and with every person that you've locked eyes with, these people that mean a whole lot to God. Justification is, is that significant. And as we get into this, guys, I can't overstate the magnitude of this theological word, justification. Right, it's, it's huge. It makes every difference. But in order to understand this, all right, we need to understand what Paul is, is doing here in this first verse of Romans chapter 5 because he begins, if you look back, he begins with that word, therefore. Okay, And as you read your Bible, all right, you know that whenever you come to that word, therefore, it is an indication. Just view it as like a giant stop sign. You need to stop every time that you see that word, therefore. Because what is about to be said is actually building off of what has already been stated. All right, and here's what Paul is saying. All right, he's saying that everything in the first four chapters of Romans is now the foundation that I'm building off of moving forward. And he says, since we have been justified, now we have peace with God. So again, we always ask questions. And so we ask the question, 
what does this actually mean for us? I mean, how do I walk out of here, not just with some like information, but I want something practical for my life. And, and I'll say this to you guys, to understand justification, we need to know that on our own, on our existence as a human, apart from Jesus, we are not at peace with God. Some of you, I know that you feel this. I've talked to some of you. Some of you, you, you feel a distance, a chasm, a tension between you and God. And the reality is, is, you need to know this, that on your own, you are in fact not at peace with God, but the Bible uses the words that you're an enemy of God. And I need to explain this to you, okay? And this, the key passage that Paul wants us to look back to in the first four chapters is in chapter three. So flip back to chapter three in your Bible. Romans chapter three, verse 20. Paul is gonna show us that the phrase peace with God means this, that until salvation, until Jesus steps in, there is a war. There's a war going on between God and us. And here's how Paul puts it in Romans 3.20. He says this, for by works of the law, and I want you to underline this whole first part, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Underline that. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now, circle that. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned. I want you to circle that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And underline verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So two overarching points that Paul makes that you need to know in order to understand gospel doctrine in this critical word of justification. All right, two things. Before I say that, I'll, I'll say this, okay? One of our core values at DOXA is to be a Bible-saturated family. Right, that if you prick us, we bleed Bible. Now, this is one of our, our goals, our values. And, and what Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, all right, he, he says this, that, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And what he means is that all of the Bible, it's about God, it's from God, but it's for us. And because the Bible, guys, is, is for us, we need to be diligent students of it. That's part of discipleship, that you're a Christian, you're also a disciple, and part of being a disciple and walking with Jesus is to literally learn to be like him. It's to be a student of his word. And because we love the Bible and we trust the Bible, we don't just read it for ideas. All right? We don't just read it for emotive experiences, but we study it for, for clarity, for understanding, because we know that every word we come across is from God. Hear that, guys. Every word is intentionally given to us from God to help us understand our lives. And so I say that to tell you guys that, that you need to study theology. You need to be able to, to articulate and understand these big words like justification. Right? You can start off this week by learning how to spell it. Right? It's a long word. Justification. We need to understand that. This is not just like a thing for pastors to do and study theology. That's a Christian thing. That as Christians, we seek to understand the Bible. We need to know theology because if we don't understand theology, we don't understand God and we don't understand ourselves and our existence and our eternity. 
Gospel doctrine is of the utmost importance. But what do we need to know? Number one, look back to verse 20 and 23 in chapter 3. For by works of the law, Paul says, no human being will be justified. And then in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling us that justification is really just articulating the fact that one day you and I, we will all die and we will all stand before God and we'll give an account for our lives. And in this moment, God takes the position of a, of a just judge, that he's perfectly just, he's perfectly holy. And because he's just, he cannot look at us and he cannot declare us to be justified on our own merit and our own life record because we are guilty as sinners. And I know that this is one of those things that we don't like to hear, we don't like to be confronted with. I don't like to say it, right? I mean, that's, I like, let's talk about love, you know, but we have to talk about this because they go hand in hand that we all sin and fall short of God. If we take an honest evaluation of our life, we can see that there's sin and there's brokenness in our life, that we sin by commission, meaning that we do the things that we shouldn't do, and we sin by omission, meaning we don't do the things that we should do. And all of our lives are wrecked with sin, that we sin by thought, word, and deed. Every single one of us. Theologically, we call this concept total depravity. All right, all of us, we're, we're completely wrecked by sin, that sin has coursed through our veins and our existence as humans in such a way that it's distorted us. Even more, the Bible talks about in 1 John that no one can say that they're without sin or they're a liar. And so this is just an opportunity for us to just sit, even if, we, even if we're Christian, if, if you're not, I, it's an opportunity just to stop and actually have an honest view of your life. And be like, am I that great? And Timothy Keller explains it like this. That when we sin, when we disobey God, because sin is just anything and everything that's in opposition to who God is and what God says. And the nature of sin is it separates us from God. But Tim Keller says the first thing that happens when we sin is we not only break God's law, but we assume the right and the authority to do so. And in effect, what we do is we place ourselves in the place of God and we claim, king, claim kingship over our lives and over the world. But the problem lies in the fact that, that really whenever there are two kings fighting for authority, conflict comes, war comes, and there is in fact one king and his name is Jesus. So when we're claiming kingship, we're coming face to face and, and there's, there's conflict, there's war. And we see this throughout human history. We see this in the history, we see this in countries today when there's, when there's two parties claiming authority in kingship, it results in conflict in, in war. This is guys, this, this happens in our lives with sin. This is what our lives look like. We're, we're in a place of, of tension and war. The second thing that happens is that our sin and disobedience, guys, means that God has, a, has an issue with us, has a, has a problem with us. That it's not that we're just hostile towards God with our sin, but he's got an issue with us. Take, it's in Romans chapter 118 is gonna come up on the screen. This is what Paul says. For the wrath of God, there's the issue. We, we need to understand that, that God is, is perfectly just, he's holy, he's all love, but he's got some anger. And he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that all of us, because of sin, the wrath of God is on us. And so Paul, what he is saying 
in chapters one through four is he's revealing to us that the wrath of God is, is a real thing, that our sin, my sin, your sin, puts us in a place where we're in conflict, we're at war with God. But you need to understand this, okay? The anger of God, the wrath of God is very different from us when we experience that feeling. All right, so there's most definitely a problem that he has with us, but I want you to hear this, guys. God's anger and his wrath, it's not vengeful or vindictive, but it's, it's legal. All right, I want you to write that down. God's wrath equals legality. It's a legal thing that his law has been broken by all of us because we all have sin in our lives and we can't keep his law. And because of this, there's just a death sentence hanging over all of our lives and we cannot just work it away. We, he can't just discard it. We can't wish it away. We can't work it away by, by doing good. We don't have anything in our power that we can do to overcome this, if, this, this problem. All right, we don't have the power or the effort to, to get rid of our sin problems by any amount of good work that we do because we can never make ourselves be at peace with God and end the war. Let me give you an analogy to help us grasp this, okay? Let's say that there was a, a judge, all right? And as a judge, his, his duty is, is justice. And in his courtroom, there's a, there's a person who's accused of a, of a terrible crime that's brought before him, Okay? And this person is, is maybe, maybe he murdered or they, they hurt someone close to you. But that person, as the judge asks him, how do you plead? And this person accused of this crime, they say emphatically, I am guilty. Now, I want you to think about this. What would you feel and how would you respond if you then watched the judge look at this person and say, I find you not guilty? You'd be sitting there and, and feeling all types of things. You'd be astonished, you'd be disturbed, and you'd say, this is a complete violation of justice. Guys, you and I are in a place where we're guilty because of sin. And God is the judge, and he's a just judge. And even though he's completely good, he's completely love, he cannot look at us on our own and say, you're innocent, you're justified because we stand guilty. Now, deep breath, come up for air. That's the hard stuff, right? That's the, that's the bad news. Don't like sharing that, not super pumped, but we need to hear it. But the question then remains, how can we be justified in God's sight? And this is the second aspect of gospel doctrine that Paul teaches us about justification. Look back at Romans 3.21, but now, this points to Jesus, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, all right? That, that the righteousness of God has been manifested, that God enters into human history as the man Jesus, and he steps in to help. He steps in to help us do what we cannot do on our own, to justify ourselves. And then in verse 24 and 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, Paul says that when it comes to our justification, even though it's by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus alone, the inclination of people, most people in this world, I would maybe even say all people, is that we seek to justify ourselves but what, by what he calls works of the law in verse 20. And what this means when we seek to justify ourselves by works of the law, it just simply means that you try to make yourself a good person. 
you try to make yourself good enough for God. That this is our basic working definition of works of the law. That even though Jesus, it's all about him, we make it all about us. It's about what we do. That you try to make yourself right rather than let Jesus making, yourself, making you right by his grace through faith. Guys, and when we consider this reality of the works of the law, it takes a very disgusting form that we can call religion. Religion is just confidence in the works of our flesh. And what this means, guys, is that, that some of you, you try to be devotely good. You try to be a very religious person. Right? You, you try and give, you try and go to church, you try and show up at things, you try and, you try and be generous, you try and be nice, you try and smile, you, whatever. You try and be devotely good, ultimately so God will love you. This is really what religion does. And the underlying false assumption of all religion is that the only way to be justified in the sight of God is that we have to earn it. And we have to do something. We have to try our best and, and clean up our lives so that God will ultimately love us and accept us. And so some of you, you try to work so hard and you try and do an incredible amount of good things in your life. And you try to stay away from the best of your ability. You try and stay away from what Christians would call sin so that you're not there, right? And, and, you, and you work really, really hard. And you're thinking all of this this becomes like your worldview because you think, okay, one day when I come before God, what I can do then is I can just hand him my resume. And so when he asks me, why should I let you into heaven? You can just hand him your resume and say, oh, well, I did a lot of stuff. Like you see like part A, I did that 15 things, right? whatever. And you hand him your resume and say, here's what I've done. Here's how good I am. Let me in. It's not about that. Now, I know some of you, you, you don't have the resume type thing, and, the, and you're not like super religious, but, but what you do is you kind of just walk through life, and you kind of look to your left and your right, right? And you look at your neighbor, you look at the kid that you go to school with, and you're saying, well, man, I'm not as jacked up as that dude, so I think I'm fine. And you just try and like make yourself a little bit better than the next person, because at the end of the day, you're thinking like, this is going to justify me. I'm a pretty good person. The problem then, the stark reality check comes in when you read the Bible and you get to places like Matthew chapter five, verse 48 and Ephesians chapter five, verse, verse one. And God says that you are to be perfect. We're to be perfect like he is perfect. And then that pit in your stomach just, just starts and you realize, well, I'm not perfect. No one is. And as I've studied this passage and reflected on it this week, the, the terrible results of this, guys, is, is a man named Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he's like, this leads to pride or despair. Pride meaning like you think you've done enough and you're fine and you just don't even care. Or despair, you constantly worry that you've never done enough. And when we do this, when we operate out of that false doctrine, we never experience joy and love and hope and security because you're constantly wondering if you've done enough for God to love you and to justify you. Now, the Bible actually speaks of this in a very direct way, right? Using very vivid wording. And I think he, the Bible does this so we don't gloss over it, all right? And I want to share a section with you in Isaiah 64. It's going to come up here on the screen. But I have to warn you that the language of this passage, talking about works of the law for the purpose of, of justification, it's shocking, all right, 
And I'm not going to hold back the, the translation to, to be overly PC because I don't want you to fall into this way of thinking, this false doctrine. But take a look. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And because of our sin, we're messed up. And all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. God is saying that your attempt to make yourself good enough to justify yourself by works of the law is like polluted garment. Now, if you translate the Hebrew, the actual wording that he uses is dirty menstrual rags. And maybe you're thinking like, why would you even say that? That's gross. It's totally gross. I say it because God says it, and I think that God says this because he wants you to understand that you, working for your justification and your salvation and the remedy of your eternal sin problem and working for the love of God, it's, it's disgusting. And it's worth nothing. That one day when you die and you come before God to give an account of your life and you stand before him as a just judge and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? If you stand there with a resume and a handful of dirty menstrual rags and say, well, here's what I got for you. It's not gonna go super well, right? And the wording here is saying, this is disgusting. You don't have to live like that, right? You just don't have to do that. And what Paul wants us to see, guys, in talking about works of the law for justification is that you do not need to work for God's love. You need to know that because he already loves you in the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's not by you doing anything. It's about trusting in the one who's done everything for you. And the Bible calls this faith. And so the truth is, is yes, we are saved by good works. It's just not your works. It's the works of Jesus. It always goes back to Jesus. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5.1 that your justification comes by faith through the Lord Jesus. I want you to see how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's going to come up here on the screen. He says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And guys, here's what he's saying. This means that all of my sin... All the sin that I've ever committed, the sin that I'm presently living in, the sin that I'm going to commit in the future, Jesus, he takes this. He becomes our justification. He takes all of this. And I want you to look at this verse. All right, It's not that God takes my sin and, and he makes me without sin, but he gives us his righteousness. Martin Luther, he calls this the great exchange, that on the cross of Jesus, as he is dying, through faith, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. And so it's not that we're just without blemish, but he actually gives us justification is that he imputes righteousness to us. And so when Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a broken, sinful person, as an as a enemy of him any longer, but he sees you through Christ as a child of God. He sees Jesus' righteousness. This is what Jesus does. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness, and his perfection. And Paul says it's a gift. And guys, I want you to know that as we begin to talk about gospel doctrine, this is the only way that we can be at peace with God and for the war to be over. So the overarching point that Paul is making, and really the, the reason that doxa exists to proclaim this good news, is because we need to understand this. This is the grid that we think through. That the only way that we can be justified, 
and stand before God as a just judge and him declare us to be justified is if we have faith in grace from Jesus alone. That we're saved and justified by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we seek to share the gospel with those around us and we seek to love our city well because people need to know this. We need to tell people that Jesus died for you. You don't have to live in that cycle of works and trying to justify yourself. Jesus did it and he loves you. That's why we gather together here and we teach the Bible and we sing songs like Jesus paid it all and we have our hands in the air, we just sing loudly, we say Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain but he washed me white as snow. Jesus is our justification and this leads to worship, wonder, awe and praise. It's all about him and what he's done and guys this is the most humbling and leveling of all Christian doctrine because it's about Jesus that there's no room for pride in here, guys. That's why one of our core values here is weakness, because there's really no reason that any of us should be proud. Because if we actually have an understanding of how broken and and sinful we actually are, and that we did nothing for that, but Jesus did it all, he justified me by everything that he did, all I'm sitting here being is thankful, not prideful. There's no room for pride, because none of us are good, only Jesus is good. And we thank him for that because he's done everything for us. And because of this reality, it should cause us to do one thing, and this is how I'm gonna end. One thing, I want you to write this down, the word move. It causes us, justification ultimately should cause us to move. And move really in two directions. It should move us towards God and it should move us towards people. And when I talk about how justification should move us towards God, because what this means is that you don't need to hide anymore. You don't need to be embarrassed of your sin. You can confess, you can repent because everyone in this room, we know that you're broken because I'm broken. And so we, can, we don't have to hide in the darkness anymore and be ashamed and wonder, oh my gosh, God's gonna hate me. No, we move towards God because we know that he's a father. In a good way to understand if you're understanding this through the grid of religion or if you're understanding this through the grid of the gospel is that when you sin, do you think of God as like a father that you need to hide from? Oh my gosh, I gotta run from my dad because if he finds out that I did this, he's gonna kill me. That's a very religious view of God. Grace, on the other hand, says, oh my gosh, I messed up. Where's my dad? I gotta go find him. I gotta tell him because he's the place. I need mercy, I need grace, I need forgiveness. I need love. We move towards God and you can move towards God. And some of you, you, you're not Christians and I know that. And I pray that this is the moment in time where God breaks in and he shows you that you are broken and that you can move towards him for the first time ever and find salvation and let him justify you. Because this is where the Christian life begins, in that celebratory moment. So we can move towards God, but we can also, and we should also, move towards people. Because if there's two things that we're about here at Doxa, it's Jesus and people. People meeting Jesus because Jesus loves people. That we can tell, we sing that song, shout it, sing it from the mountains, tell the masses that what? Jesus is God. And we can move towards people and proclaim it with the way that we live and our words and just say, it's about Jesus and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Gospel doctrine affects everything. Because the only reason that this church exists 
is because the gospel is real. Jesus has done it. He's alive and well and reigning as king. And he's in the process of justifying people, bringing them together, called the church, with the mission to share that good news with this entire city that goes to the entire state, the entire country, and ultimately the world. Let me pray. God, I thank you for, uh, for the Bible. I, I know that as I've been thinking about this week, just my sin and my life experiences and everything that's shaped and formed me, um, it's distorted my view of you in some ways. But I thank you that your Holy Spirit has been working on me that you've allowed me to see how good of a father you actually are and it allows me to then move to you in my sin. And so I pray that as we reflect on Paul's words here in Romans 5, just this one verse, that you would compel us to move us towards you. That we would find grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and that you would move us out towards people, the people that you love, that we cross paths with every day, that we say nothing to, but we have this great news that Jesus is our justification, that you don't have to do anything, you just need to come and fall on your face before him. So as we sing these songs,